gonna purchase? That's a name. You need to really get off my balls, okay? I'm gonna kick your ass. Also, why was Michelangelo so stinky? Ew. Welcome to the third edition of the Ultraman Files. I'll be your host today, Patrick. And today we'll be discussing a couple of things. We'll be recapping the recap episode of Ultraman Decker and also breaking down episode six of the series. And also we'll be getting into the very first issue of the newest Ultraman Marvel comic, The Mystery of Ultra 7. And uh, just diving right into it, we'll be discussing the special recap episode, The Return of Marlulu, which I did think was funny that literally after five episodes, there's already a recap episode, and usually these are a little further into the series, but I guess they just wanted to uh, catch folks up to speed with what's been happening. And while that's not really necessary for us, because like, we just discussed this on the first episode at the top of the month, but uh, just to kind of go over briefly what the story portion of the recap episode was. Basically, it talks about this, this particular section of the Guts team, of, of the TPU organization, that there is a, uh, a lone individual who is the sole uh, member of the section, uh, Masamichi Hota. Basically, it's just this sort of middle-aged man as he's keeping this keeping this department up and running and this department is, is known for like maintaining designing uh the equipment and weapons and vehicles that the gut select team uses and basically he has like this a uh, little flashback of working with marlulu 10 years previous to the series uh and this department they were very close good friends it's a small team developing the uh the technology that the organization uses and, you know, he's all kind of like, one, he's a little bored in his in his station because, you know, he's the only one there and it's been, like, kind of downsized in, in as many years. And he's, but still he's being kind of pressured with deadlines. So he gets flustered and knocks over this giant stack of blank papers that's like, oh, no, my, my studies. As he's picking up the pieces, um, his old friend Marluru uh, returns and Marluru, in case she uh, needed a refresher, they were the alien buddy from uh, Ultraman Trigger, who's sort of like a, the uh, the tech operative on the bridge of the Nurse Dress Eye ship. He's a, an alien Metron, the, like an old Ultraman foe, basically. Like he has a kind of a large, kind of oval head, like big yellow eyes, like this um, cycling light ornament on his head. He has long sleeves with like frilled edges to sort of replicate the kind of tube-like frilled arms of the typical antagonistic alien Metron. But uh, Marlulu, he's he's a pal, he's a friend of the Gut Select, and he's been involved with the team for years. And uh, he was previously a part of this section before he was um, sent on up to like a more field-active team. And they catch up, you know, what's been going on in the uh, intervening years. And, they, and they, through this is how they recap the first five episodes basically going over like 
the Guts Falcon, the Guts Hawk, the Nurse Resai, uh, just sort of like discussing how that department is the one that's sort of responsible for creating and maintaining it. They discuss a little bit of the Professor Yuichiro Asakage. He's sort of the young uh, scientist who's like in charge of all the creation of all the equipment. And like he is, it's his brainchild, and then the rest of the team, like, well, uh, that hotel Marlulu, they were responsible in like helping him undertake the manufacturing of this. Basically, just to dive back into his his little story a little bit, because like he's kind of like a minor character in this series so far. He's in the opening credits, but like he hasn't really been in the series a whole hell of a lot. So it's kind of like help, kind of hey, remember this guy uh, that we haven't really talked about a lot. And then they discuss you know some of the things that happened in Trigger because that's where uh, Marlulu's from. And they accidentally reveal that Kingo uh, turned into Trigger, Kendo being the previous protagonist, and just blowing Hota's mind that, oh, yeah, people, uh, humans can turn into Ultraman. And he's like, oh, crap, that was a secret. And they sort of uh, recap a little bit, sort of the finale of Trigger, basically, Trigger's revealing his identity as uh, Kento, or excuse me, Kingo. Uh, his final battle with the evil Ultra Woman, uh, Chimera. His seeming sacrifice at the end of Trigger to contain a massive amount of energy that Chimera was after the whole season. And then they get into a little bit of the Ultraman Trigger and Ultraman Z, or excuse, Ultraman Z team-up movie. So Z, uh, where they uh, have to combat a evil version of Ultraman Trigger, which... Uh, through the through their combined forces, they're able to defeat just very quickly. They and uh, they reiterate the fact that the barrier that the spear aliens have erected that's what keeps out interaction between any sort of outside forces, keeping out any sort of outside interaction and communication from space and the planet Earth. Marlu mentions that the team from Trigger they're more or less they've gone out to space to, to go on to bigger and better things to help, you know, protect the galaxy at large. And, you know, he hasn't heard from them since be, uh, the spirit attack because the barrier, as, as mentioned, keeps out all outside communication. But Marlulu is back on the special section three team to help Hota keep up the good work and keep the gut select team in up-to-date equipment to, in order to fight off the aliens and kaiju as they come. And have a little bit of a tease with an upcoming item weapon designated as DG-001. No idea what that might be. First thing that comes to mind, the, the new weapon to stop alien and kaiju attacks is, of course, your favorite discount grocery store, Dollar General. That's right, Dollar General is the front line in the war against kaiju and alien villains. Yep, so that's the recap in and out. You know, basically... Just the first five episodes with some extra little flavor in there. So moving right along to the the main review, which will be of episode six titled Subterranean Monster Appears and Appears. And this episode opens up with a news team, a camera crew out on the uh, Central Park area of the city where they are covering that the Sazame bamboo is flowering uh, for the first time in 120 years. And because, like, this bloom is seen as such a rarity that it comes with, like, this legend that whenever this bamboo blooms, it's actually, like, an omen of disaster. 
And honestly, no sooner does uh, this new newscast end, the strange things begin to happen. Like there's a giant golden rainbow that appears in the sky, and shortly thereafter its appearance, a kaiju erupts from the ground. Pagos, the subterranean monster, shows up. Basically, it's kind of like a quadrupedal kaiju with ones running all fours, has like these big large cusps coming out of its mouth, two horns in the back of its head, and sort of like a ridge back, kind of like a turtle. And if you're familiar with the Godzilla kaiju Angers, imagine Angers with just like fewer spikes. Pagos attacks the city for a little bit, then he digs back underground and disappearing. And Guts of the Left has been monitoring the entire event. And it's a sort of recap of what Pagos is. And Pagos being a, a well-known classic ultra kaiju. Full name being Pago Tortoise, like a scientific designation. It's binomial nomenclature. And basically recapping some of its lore, like the rainbow that's seen in the sky is sort of like its preemptive display before it attacks. And golden rainbows designate that the... Pagos is a male, uh, one of the peers. And so they get ahead on everything. Uh, the captains, they send out Ryumon and uh, Asami to the, to the ground to sort of investigate what's been happening in the city in the aftermath of the Pagos' attack. During their beat, they discover that the bamboo flowers are wilting because uh, it has really deep roots, so to, apparently, and, it, and because the Pagos is digging things up, that sort of interfering with the blossoming of the bamboo. Uh, Asami, he talks to uh, a nice old lady who says that this is all the earth god's curse because mankind is interfering with the earth and doing things they ought not to. Specifically pointing out there's this giant energy factory that's mining for something called super critical metal or a mineral that's found deep underground and then they convert said metal into energy crystals uh, that provides like a power source for the city this is all just mumbo jumbo science you know whatever sci-fi bullshit as they're in- investigating more like we on this rather pensive this whole episode like because part of the previews for this one leading up like there's something going on with Remon internally like he seems very focused even more so than usual to sort of get to the bottom of this uh, kaiju attack. Like I said, and during the investigation, Pagos uh, reemerges and he starts causing a lot more pandemonium, which leads to just like a really funny bit where when Pagos uh, pops out of the ground, Rebone's like, get out of here, Asami. Get the people out of town. I'll take care of this. And then this man, like, legitimately pulls out his fucking service pistol, his Glock, and starts firing at Pagos, you know, this gigantic turtle kaiju, and then, you know, surprisingly, doesn't do anything. It Pagos, like, rustles around, knocks some dirt and debris on top of him. There's actually a really nice miniature effect where Asami is trying to evacuate a civilian. There's a, there's a really nice, like, tunneling effect because to simulate Pegos, like, burrowing on the ground. They have, like, a this head and droid, directly sort of to camera, just, like, busting through underneath the uh, the ground of this set. It's a really nice effect. I really appreciated that. And they, and they replay it in Guts's debriefing of the situation. Ramon was sent to the hospital. He gets out fine, and he decides because he... He felt so bad about not being able to do anything to help the situation. He has to hit the gym and just like work out the feeling because he's just feels 
really bad about not being able to contribute more to the situation. And when Asami just talks to him about this, like, what's going on, man? You seem more agitated than usual. And Rimon just sort of lets a little bit of his history come out because the only thing we knew of him up to this point was that he was rescued as a child by a TPU agent during a kaiju attack. And here he, he goes on to say that he was actually born into a very wealthy family and and everything came easy to him due to his family's like status and resources. But because of that, he felt like he never truly was able to stand out on his own. It's like he was just self looking, well if if I get everything I want because of my family's like wealth and connections, like then what abilities do I actually have? So he decides to join the TPU to like demonstrate to himself what his actual abilities are and not what can be gained through status and influence. The reason why he's so focused is that he believes that perfection is absolutely necessary for a gut sluts agent because this is life and death for the the gut slut team because when kaiju attack people get hurt, buildings are destroyed, and it's up to them to try to save as many people as possible. And they don't have the luxury to make mistakes during these sort of, you know, dangerous attacks. So he's very driven and very focused on achieving his goal of just being the most efficient member of the team as possible. So Pegos emerges for the third time and he's attacking the cities. So Asami and Yumon are dispatched once again into battle with Yumon piloting the Falcon so he's like strafing around, firing off rounds on Pegos as it's sort of like barreling through the city. And Carino and Asami are evacuating people. Asami finds the right moment to sneak away, turns into Ultraman Decker, and then he confronts Pegos on the center of the park because they realize that, or, or rather Riamon realized that Pegos was actually attacking the city and uh, energy sources in a perimeter around Central Park, which they deduced that underneath the park is actually where Pegos' nest is, and he's sort of attacking close by his nest and bringing it back to his resting place so he can devour, because he's such a big kaiju and is known for eating almost exclusively this super critical metal, that that's why he's attacking all these energy factory industries because that's what the power is derived from, the sort of the breaking down of this like fancy sci-fi metal. So when the and Decker and Pegos are like scrapping in the city, there's there's a there's a great bit where essentially Decker uh, hits uh, Pegos with a dragon screw twist and like he grabs it by the horn and spins him around like on the he ends up kind of like spinning himself out and he crashes into the ground so when he but when he goes to stand back up tentacles shoot out of the ground and like attack Decker it's like whoa what are these tentacles coming from it's in this moment that Riamon's like thinks like okay this whole time is it felt a little weird because Pegos is a big just big lumbering tortoise like kaiju because there's no way that he's been conceivably able to hit all these locations in the city as quickly as his half, because that's something that was coming out through the episodes. Like, you know, normally he's not able to move this fast, so something seems a bit off. It's during this moment they realize, oh, the reason why it seemed like he's moving so fast is actually there's a second kaiju that's been attacking in conjunction with Pegos. So Decker is pulled underground into this gigantic cavernous 
area underneath the city. Like, it's huge. And, you know, these are already, like, giant figures in this giant cave. It's, it's absurd. And you have Pegos and Decker facing off. And the second Kaiji reveals itself being Gudon, the subterranean monster. Gudon's being a, uh, a well-known older Kaiju. It basically looks kind of insect-like, kind of bipedal, long tail, like segmented, insect-like armor, insect-like horn, spikes across its body, but also its hands are these giant long whip-like tentacles. That's when both Kaiju just gang up on Decker, like smacking him around. But Gudon is definitely the leader of the pack. He's definitely like, he will whip Pegos around to get him to attack more ferociously or get back up when it's not down. It was during these little moments, I think, like, oh, is Pegos kind of like this sympathetic kaiju? Like, is it being like bullied by Gudon into attacking? Uh, but that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, it was just more so Gudon was that head of honcho and then Pegos was like the lackey of the duo. As Decker is trying to fight off both of these, Remon in the in the Falcon falls him through the hole that was dug out into the underground cavern. And when he shows up to lend a hand, like shooting off his rounds to fight both of them, that's when like more chaos gets stirred up because like during all this commotion wakes up other kaiju. So this is it's like cavalcade of kaiju. We have a Telosdon shows up in in the, in the fracas, and Telosdon being a a very classic, very old kaiju. It basically, it looks kind of like a a brown lizard-like kaiju. It's like kind of segmented in a, in a way as well. And then there's like a, a sheet of rocks fall down and reveals like a colony of twin tails. Like these earwig, centipede-like kaiju. And they have an interesting design in their suits because it looks, it's meant to look like a kind of centipede is reared up with its head on the ground and its tail kind of in the air menacingly. And in actuality, like, the person, the suit after his head is at the, the base of the tail with the pincers and the little feelers and their feet's at the head. So, like, it gives this illusion of, like, this kind of bug that's kind of fenced itself up to be more threatening. So there's, like, a whole army of them, and they're wiggling around, being very menacing. It's at this point that Decker realized he's outnumbered, so he summons one of his card kaiju, one of his allied kaiju, and this being Agira. Basically, imagine kind of like a Triceratops-like kaiju, but which is just a single downward-facing horn. Agira like charges its energy into its horn and just lunges straight ahead into Telestan. Just like tackles him, spears him, and then just, like immediately explodes upon contact. And Agira just like worn out by the uh, battle, sort of dissipates away. So that's one kaiju down, several more to go. This is where Ryomon realizes they have to be more strategic because the, the odds are still against them. The, the numbers are not in their favor. So he devises a plan. He shoots like a tracker missile into um, the back of Pegos's head. And then he tells the captain and the nurse side, you know, to shoot their big, super serious laser. So the nurse dress side goes into battle mode. It transforms from what this ship and unfolds into basically a dragon, which is a really cool 
bit because I remember when Nurse Dress Slice ship first appeared in Trigger, I was like, okay, this thing's gonna transform at some point, and sure enough, it did. And so they show off the battle mode again. This is giant, like long Asiatic dragon, like serpentine moving through the air, and then it fires it just its big fuck all laser deep into the ground, guided by Riomon's tracker on Pegos, and they blow him the hell up. It's not just like he gets hit by the kaboom. Like it actually, you see it hit Pegos's back, punch through his chest, through his back. And then he just explodes in this massive fireball. At this point, Decker is running low on energy. His chest icon's flashing. And he starts dipping and dodging Gudon, the energy beams. And when he rolls out of the way, Gudon accidentally blows up the <laughs> Twin Tail army. In case you forgot about them. So they get exploded. There's like bugs and bog, bug body parts flying everywhere. And then like a rock slide crushes remains crushes the remains of the twin tail colony and at this point decker just you know it's like okay no more screwing around i gotta end this quick so he transformed into his blue form the miracle type with a lot of like fancy powers and abilities so he creates this vortex portal that sucks up himself and Gudon. they reappear on the surface high in the sky and when Gudon gets is flung out of the portal <laughs> Decker just like starts charging the beginning and I was like no ma'am is this was this boy playing Fortnite he about to hit a Kamehameha summons his big energy ball flings it at uh, Gudon and Gudon tries to push it away with his energy beams but to no avail he hits it big explosion in the sky and that's the end of the kaiju menace for this week. And so in the aftermath of the the big battle, the captains on the gut scene, they, they have like this conversation to themselves, you know, sort of praising Riemann's like excellent observation skills, mental acuity, and sort of like grace under fire. But they are very concerned with like his sort of drawbacks. Like, yes, he's a very keen mind on the battlefield but he's sort of obsessed with perfection like and obviously perfection's not attainable the harder you chase trying to make something perfect the, the more you're going to fail because like that's just not something that's achievable and they they're concerned about that as well his reluctance to open up to his teammates and distance himself from them they sort of like put it to bed for now and just like you know they have confidence that Working together, the team will sort of balance each other out and be able to become a more efficient, well-rounded individuals on the team. And the last part of the episode is sort of Asami and Rimon having like a private moment in the in the locker room. It's like, and that's where Rimon sort of goes back over his his mission statement. The reason why he joined the team, the reason why he's working so hard, is that he was saved as a child during a monster attack. And it's because of, like, the quick-acting nature of the, of this team member and, like, the skills they had. That's was why he was able to be saved. And he realized in order for him to be, like, the agent that saved him, he has to be on top of his game. He has to be the best he can be. He believes that because this is life-and-death struggle, they don't have the, the time to mess around. It's like you only get one chance to save the people during these dangerous situations and... Their team is very small. They don't have a lot of active agents who are able to fight against the kaiju. So he has to work even harder to overcome 
their short numbers and, and try to help as many people as they can. So that's why he realizes he has to be, he believes he has to be perfect in order to do that. And this is when Remo and Awesome have like this sort of, this moment of understanding and respect for each other. That even as like frosty as Ramon is, he has like a sincere desire to help others just as much as Awesome does. Even if Awesome is a little devil may care at least on the surface that's sort of the basis of episode six you know uh not a bad episode it's definitely pretty straightforward although i did love um you know just having like a whole bunch of kaiju in this episode with pegos with yudon with talistan and in like the all the cg twin tail just like wiggling around in the background so not a bad episode next episode episode seven is definitely seems to be a big one this setting up the big team up episode between decker and trigger curious to see how trigger makes it back to earth considering the spheres like nigh on impenetrable barrier around the planet earth so i'm interested to see how that team up gets going and it looks like they'll be facing off against the the final kaiju from trigger so like how does that get resurrected i'm interested to see how they how they uh, work together in the next episode all right and the next item on the docket for today's episode is the overview of the very first issue of the mystery of ultra 7 the third marvel ultraman comic miniseries and uh, we'll get deep into that after this break hang tight Welcome back, everybody. Here it is, part two of the episode three, and we'll be discussing issue number one of the Marvel and Ultraman's collaboration comic, The Mystery of Ultra 7. And this is the third uh, limited-run series in the Marvel Ultraman line, picking up after the previous Ultraman series, The Trials of Ultraman, which came out last year. This picks up after the end of the Trials of Ultraman, and the issue opens with this quartet of aliens on the planet, Dimbara, discussing the best way to arm themselves against kaiju attacks. Basically, they're sort of wanting to strengthen themselves personally in order to fight off kaiju instead of relying on the ultras. And Ultra 7 is there with this glowing orb, which releases a classic Ultra monster, Ella King, on a more, quote, human-sized basis to fight this quartet and sort of, like, strengthen their resolve and physical determination to fight off the kaijus individually. But unfortunately, the kaiju's too strong. They're not able to fight it off, and Ultra 7 has to step in to fight off Ella King and, and, and he's then reabsorbed back into the glowing ball. It's basically the kaiju space because in the previous series, uh, which I do plan to cover at, at a later date on the Ultraman files, the, the Rise of Ultraman series from 2020 and the Trials of Ultraman series from 2021, 
basically just sort of to give a quick recap, it was discovered that kaiju are, are trapped within like this pocket dimension where they're sent and they and they can sort of be sent in and out from at will with a certain device or through the, the weakening of dimensional walls they're able to escape by themselves and in this case this orb is sort of like a gate key into this pocket dimension where kaiju are sent and so it's sort of kind of like a phantom zone to bar something from superman ultraman's of this ultraman story and that's where the Elking sent back into. And basically the leader of this sort of alien militia that orders to, to fight off the kaiju is sort of disappointed that they're unable, despite their best efforts, to really stand up against the kaiju themselves. And Ultra 7 is trying to encourage them and help them out the, the most that it can, but in this setting, the Ultras, while they are... A beneficent group and they're trying to help out alien or sentient life in the in the galaxy in the universe at large they're forbidden from interfering too greatly with any one civilization lest they sort of supplant any indigenous lives or indigenous sentient beings like abilities to stand up for themselves or make their own decisions and make their own progress while the ultras are there to help, they don't want to become any indigenous group comes reliant on the abilities of the Ultraman. They're sort of made the ultras they're there to help guide and protect, but not to overtly influence any one group. But this sort of bothers Ultra Seven because like how removed the ultras are from the greater universe. Like we could do more. Like why aren't we helping out more intently? with the with these different sentient lives like the kaiju threat is growing and and like most groups outside the ultras aren't able to efficiently combat them and that's sort of his frustration and then there's a flashback to ultra seven on the in the land of light in the crystalline headquarters of Ultras, where he's talking with father of ultra of course a leader uh, amongst the ultras and there's just a really funny bit in this panel where ultra seven is trying to talk with father of ultra to like hey we should be more active in our protection of the galaxy and it's just like it's a very like almost kind of sensual pose like he's sort of got his back bucked out and his ass poking out and like ultra ultra seven got cheeks in this comic i just gotta say like he's his butt's popping out and i guess <laughs> i guess that's uh to combat the fact that shin ultraman is sorry to say has negative ass like they did shin ultraman dirty he's just a flat bat with a crack oh we need to give the ultras <laughs> power in all compartments of their life give ultraman a fat ass i'm saying it i'll be brave and i'll say it give ultraman a fat ass but anyway ultra seven is sort of just frustrated with what he's been told basically told not to interfere any further like obviously keep an eye on things but don't dig too deeply or involve yourself too much more because they'll upset the balance of the native world and the yada yada and so he's just like fine i'll go back to denbar and i'll check things out so he hops in his ultra orb and flies back to denbar then we cut 
back to present day where the protagonist of the Ultra Comics through Marvel, Shin Hayato, wakes up from his coma after the previous uh, series. Basically, Shin Hayato, he sort of combined with his Ultraman, you know, who would be like OG Ultraman, that's sort of his uh, partner. In, in traditional Ultra fashion, he... And his Ultra, they're, they're sharing a body, the Ultra living within him, giving him counsel, giving him advice. And one thing I really think is cool about this uh, comic, and I love it when other Ultra series do, is basically that the human host and the Ultra are separate beings. They sort of have an interaction with each other, which you don't get a lot of the time. So a lot of times, the Ultra is just like this force... This energy that the human host taps into, it just depends on the series, but seen as the Ultra and the human as two distinct individuals. Excuse me, what happened earlier in, in the previous series is that a that Dan Morbushi was like was a beloved member of the the science patrol of this setting, and he disappeared mysteriously back in the sixties. And then the the previous stories, he sort of resurfaced as and as because he was trapped in that phantom zone for kaiju, and he was didn't age for all these years, and so when he escapes, he you know has this sort of you know adventure back or has this adventure with Shin, but unfortunately he he turns on Shin and he drains the ultra essence out of Shin leaving him comatose, but giving him the ability to transform into Ultra 7, which is a, sets a course for what this series is, the mystery of Ultra 7. What does it mean? How is he connected to Dan? Why did Dan sort of, quote, bet, you know, seemingly betray Shin and the organization as a whole? What, like, what does all of this mean? Shin wakes up in the hospital of the United Science Patrol, and he's sort of like trying to put everything back together. And so he's feeling very lethargic and confused as to why he's getting these dreams and memories that aren't him. Basically, he's had this the story that opened up the issue about Ultra Seven on the on that other planet. That's a memory that's being sort of transplanted into his head, and they theorizing that because there's this sort of interaction of energy between Dan and Shin that some of Ultra Seven's memories like faded into Shin and that's why he's sort of getting like these weird bits and pieces. And the director of the United Science Patrol, uh Ichin Otani is sort of keep getting him up to date about what's been happening. The Ultra Seven is in the area. Like he's he's fighting kaiju. He's sort of like kind of raising causing ruckus. And there's a really cool two-page spread of Ultra 7 fighting an Ella King. Just like super kicking him into a building. And they're just everybody's just wondering, like, what is Ultra 7's deal? Like, he's fighting not the Kaiju, but he's kind of being a, something of a destructive force in the area. Even more so than usual collateral damage that happens when fighting Kaiju. And then, like, as they're talking, Shin sort of loses consciousness again. And it seems like whenever Ultra 7 is active, Shin has a hard time staying conscious because, like, because his energy was taken from him 
as an Ultraman. So he's trying to figure out like, because it's basically kind of almost like they're sharing this sort of reservoir of energy. And so whenever Ultra 7 is active, he has to go back into dormancy. And sort of this goes, leads into another one of Ultra 7's memories of when he gets back to the planet Dimbara and see that the, the planet's in complete and total ruin. The planet is destroyed. The Kaijus have attacked, and they, you know, like I said before, they had no great capability to fight off the Kaijus, so the planet was destroyed. So he's just frustrated. He takes out his frustrations on a flying Kaiju that comes to attack him. He kicks it into the air, destroys it. So he goes back to his Ultra Orb and sort of starts to, like, digging into what to do next. And... It's through here that it, that kind of like gets more into the detail of the of what was sort of set up in the previous series that the head of Honcho, the United Space Patrol executive director Morheim, is this woman who seemingly had some mysterious deals with an alien force and 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 Damor Boshi's time. And so Ultra 7 is investigating this. And so it cuts back to modern day where the executive director is, is visiting Shin in the hospital. And she's trying very pointedly to get information out of him regarding Ultra 7. But of course Shin is like, he's barely been conscious. So he's having a hard time understanding himself. Like, why is he feeling this? And she's just sort of... Being very blunt and direct until figuring out why this is happening. She wants to know more about Ultra 7 and his connection with him. And then, and as sort of she's pressing him in this moment, he gets another memory of Ultra 7's sphere traveling to Earth back in the day and crashing into the, sp- into the ship that Dan Moroboshi was piloting in the 60s. And basically having like this connection moment, like Ultra Seven combines with the the spirit of Dan Morboshi and shows him, and by extension Shin, these like these big memories of the kaiju sort of like spreading and populating throughout the galaxy. And Executive Director Morheim is being even just like outright screaming at Shin to give heard information regarding Ultra 7, but he just is incapable of articulating because it's just like these painful memories are just flooding into his body. Because during this memory, it's where Dan Morboshi is sort of seeing the images of the kaiju propagating throughout the universe. Ultra 7 sees something off screen behind Dan Morboshi. And it's in this revelation that Dan Morboshi was seemingly killed in this moment because while in it in this and sort of their shared mental headspace ultra seven it was explaining what ultras are and like how why he saved them a kaiju had manifested behind him and skewered dan morboshi with his tail the elokin that seemingly is recurring throughout the whole issue uh stabs Nirmboshi through through the back into the chest and like seemingly kills him and that's where the main story of Ultra Seven ends for this issue. So it sets up just like this intrigues like what's the deal with Dan? Like wh- how is he still alive after seemingly being skewered? And like why is Ultra Seven sort of like going against his 
uh, leaders' authority to like to be more like proactive and fighting the kaiju and sort of what this means for Shin and manifesting as Ultraman because at this point he has no ability to transform like he can't even feel Ultraman within him so like he's completely cut off from the power and abilities that he's grown accustomed to and I'm curious to see how it uh, it pans out even though that's the end of the Ultra 7 story for this year that's not the end of the book we still have a few backup stories including like a little like little cute like one page story like backup story uh Gurihiru is a um a well-known Japanese artist who works a lot with Marvel recently most has done art for the Gwenpool stories and he's doing the art for these little kaiju backup stories which features the classic uh kaiju uh pigmon as he's like just hanging out with a a sort of hapless member of the United Science Patrol and in this page uh, a alien Dada is attacking distorting reality distorting gravity is like sucking things up into a vortex and with the Kaiju Step series basically Pokemon sort of like dispensing information and like how to act during a Kaiju attack and uh, with he, he's assuaging a, a, a father and his son you know everything's okay the Science Patrol is here to help and the agent will step in. But, you know, of course, being the unlucky, unlucky agent that he is, he's trapped in Dada's, like, reality vortex. And he's sort of, like, spun around and just, like, this never-ending uh, cycle of distorted reality. And that ends that that uh, paid story. And going to the next backup story, it's sort of set in the in the 70s of, of this world. Basically, we have a younger director, Ichinotani, out on a fuel mission with the the then-director of the USP, uh, Agent Kato, as she uh, fights off these bird-like alien, bird-like humanoid aliens in the field. She blasts them with her ray gun sends it packing and then they, they come into a clearing where they see a giant crater in the crater is an is the another classic ultra villain bolton and bolton is basically like this multi-pronged organism with like these geometric tube-like protrusions that emit like energies and rays and occasionally egg beaters to distort space and time and it's kind of hard to describe basically imagine like this almost sea sponge with like tubes and projections with like blue and white and red splotches across it and basically this bolt-on and this crater is just like emitting these sort of like energy fields that are like distorting reality causing like more uh, of these sort of other aliens to appear and Ichinotani is like trying to blast off aliens as they come and director Kato, you know, draws her electric, you know, her pretty badass electric sword, uh, that to yes, she used great effect in the very in the Ultra Q set era in the very, very first issue of the Rise of Ultraman to fight off a kaiju. But unfortunately as she's charging to to face down the bolt on, she's 
blasted with just full force like energy ray seemingly she sort of warped out of time and space and then instantly sent right back with a bleeding uh stomach wound so like he seems like he's very confused like what just happened you were like warped in and out of reality you were beat up and like then in her like the last of her energies she warns him of this danger like that this bolton is like attracted to energy and attracted to powerful energy at that and that it's actively killing Ultraman, or it will kill Ultraman. Which is like, then each and Atani confused, like, what does this mean? Like, what's an Ultraman? And then cut to the hospital where Director Kato wakes up, and there is Executive Director Morheim. She's being very suspicious once again. Of course, it's been a younger Director Morheim. She's very sus- suspicious. Of, of the director as, as like a very pointed line of inquiry about what happened to her when she was zapped by the Bolton and sent through time and space. And she and Morheim is, is asking her, like, what does she mean by Ultraman? How did you know about Ultraman? Because no one else knows about this. And then Kato puts together that Morheim is afraid of Ultraman, that like, that her and her benefactors are whatever their plans are, the Ultra stand in opposition to that. And then Kato reveals that she, when she was hit with old Bolton's Ray, she was sent to the future for an undisclosed amount of time before she was sent back. And then she finds out that, you know, the Ultras are, are here. They're going to, they're, you know, they stand to stop. Uh, Morheim and her benefactors and Morheim is like uh oh you know too much girl we gotta get rid of you so there she attacks uh, the director Kato and then she strangles her in her bed and then she walks back out of the uh, the hospital room into the hallway where a weary Ichinotani is waiting and she's just like oh I'm sorry she succumbed to her wounds she died as, as she's there sort of counseling Ichinotani you know and it's, and it's like, and this like this moment of grief is like, we'll make sure she gets the hero's funeral she deserves, and she's like cloaked in shadow as she departs from the room. Was sort of, this is sort of like this backup story, this secondary plot as to like you know what happens in the past, like what's the deal with executive, that Morheim, who's she working with, like who are these aliens that she's in league with, and what does she want and what does she fear of the Ultraman that they're able to potentially stop her and her benefactors so I think it's a, it's a pretty intriguing series so far um, I, like I said I do plan at some point to get uh, more into detail about the events of the rise of Ultraman and the trials of Ultraman uh, respectively but for the first issue of the Ultra 7 series I think it was it's pretty solid I'm definitely intrigued to see where this goes um i do hope uh that we're able to get you know more kaiju action more ultra action uh in in this third series you know so to to spoil a little bit for my reviews of rise and trials trials you know it was a little light on the kaiju action it was a little more dialogue heavy but i'll i'll get more to that at a later date but um uh, I say it's a good first issue, and I'm excited to see where it goes. And, and I'm curious, like, how this series 
may possibly influence or lead into the upcoming Avengers Ultraman crossover that's slated to come out next year. So excited to see what what happens going forward. And um, just a prospect of more Toku comics in America because no, we have uh, the Red Man comic being re-released. We'll have the Ultra Seven comics coming out from now until the end of the year, and then what we expect to see later on in the year because I believe there's a Common Rider Zero comic that's slated to come out in November. So I'm very intrigued by this this slate of American-made uh, Toku content. Very pleased to see how the rest of this falls out. I think that will be where we'll cut it off for today. Thank you so much for your patience and uh and the intervening week. And then um and uh, please uh, join us for the uh, next installment of the Ultraman Files. We'll discuss more Ultraman Decker and any and any fun Ultraman content that comes up along the way. Be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. That's SoundCloud. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe and all those platforms. Helps us out. Keeps us visible. Puts in front of more people. You know, I always appreciate you when you do it. If you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, that means on Monday, August 22nd, released a brand new episode of AYCH. Colt Wenzel still going strong on their takeover AYCH. They released episode 277 where they discussed... A, a lot of video game news that came out during the month from games that released to video game showcases, a, a big talk about the newest Pokemon revealed for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. So go check that out. On Thursday, August 25th, there's a brand new episode of Cajun Greatness where the Cage crew had a, had a new edition of Travolting Development where they break down the 1978 classic the movie musical Grease, and you know, sh- share how they really feel about this iconic performance from John Travolta, Nicolas Cage's, we'll say, cinematic counterpart. And also, if you would, uh, go back and check out uh, my interview with writer and comedian Joey Cliff, and we discussed in detail uh, the new movie in the Predator series, Prey, all the action involved with it, Sort of the groundbreaking native representation in a blockbuster movie. And just a lot of really good conversation. Go please check that out. Uh, August has been a really big month for AYC. We had a lot of shows come out. Really sort of trying some new things. And we're really looking forward to what the fall has for us. And just sort of our big ideas and and just uh, new things we want to try out for this show. So be sure to check all those things out when they come. We appreciate you as we sort of sort of go through our, our little experimental phase with AYCH, you know, just trying to do things out and try to put out as much interesting content for you all to enjoy. So we really appreciate you listening to all those shows and listen to this and just keeping the lights on and uh, keeping us motivated to keep trying and making new things. Um, until the next episode of the Ultraman Files, Take care. Jumping off to the sky. Signing off with a hearty shoo watch. <laughs> <laughs>